0: Easter brings thoughts of the Savior, His life, His atonement, His resurrection, His love. He has risen from the dead with healing in His wings. Oh, how we all need the healing the Redeemer can provide. Mine is a message of hope for you who yearn for relief, From heavy burdens that have come through no conscious act of your own while you live a worthy life. Your challenge may be a serious disability, suffering with a disease that is life threatening or trying to overcome an illness. It may have roots in the death of a loved one or the suffering that comes from anguish, from one bound in sin, or come from abuse in any of its evil forms. I testify that whatever the cause, relief is available on conditions established by the Lord. Help from the Lord always follows eternal law. The better you understand that law, the easier it is to receive His help. Some of the principles upon which His healing are predicated follow. Please understand that His healing can mean being cured, or having your burdens eased, or even coming to realize that it is worth it to endure to the end patiently. For God needs brave sons and daughters— who are willing to be polished when, in his wisdom, that is his will. Recognize that some challenges in life will not be resolved here on earth. Paul pled thrice that a thorn in the flesh be removed, and the Lord simply answered, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness— He gave Paul strength to compensate so that he could live a most meaningful life. He wants you to learn how to be cured when that is his will and how to obtain strength to live with your challenge when he intends it to be an instrument for growth. In either case, the Redeemer will support you. That is why he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When you feel you can do no more temporarily, lay your challenges at his feet. The scriptures tell you how. For example, when the oppressed people of Alma did pour out their hearts to him, and he did know the thoughts of their hearts, the Lord blessed them, saying, I will ease the burdens which are put upon your shoulders that ye cannot feel them that ye may know that I, the Lord God, do visit my people in their afflictions. And the Lord did strengthen them that they could bear up their burdens with ease. And they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. Submitting cheerfully with patience to all His will lets you learn precious, if difficult, lessons— and eternal truths that will yield blessings. The example of Alma and Amulek is enlightening. While striving to do good among the people of Ammonihah, they were taken captive. Amulek trusted his more seasoned companion Alma, who led him to greater confidence in the Lord. Forced to observe women and children consumed by fire, Amulek said, Perhaps they will burn us also. Alma answered, Be it according to the will of the Lord, a vital principle. But our work is not finished, therefore they burn us not. The chief judge and others over many days smote, spit upon, starved, questioned, and harassed them with mocking words and threats. Though commanded to speak, they withstood silence, Bound and naked, waiting patiently for the Lord to inspire them to act. Then the power of God was upon Alma and Amulek, and they arose. Alma cried, Give us strength according to our faith which is in Christ, even unto deliverance. And they broke the cords with which they were bound. The earth shook, the prison walls were rent, all who smote Alma and Amulek were slain, and they were freed. On another occasion, Alma prayed, O oh Lord, have mercy on this man and heal him according to his faith in, which is in Christ. These two examples give the essential key to healing. The Lord will give relief with divine power when you seek deliverance in humility and faith in Jesus Christ. Don't say, no one understands me, I can't sort it out, I can't get the help I need. Those comments are self-defeating. No one can help you without faith on your part. Your personal growth depends on that. Don't look for a life virtually free from discomfort, pain, pressure, challenge, or grief— For those are the tools a loving father uses to stimulate our personal growth and understanding. As the scriptures repeatedly affirm, you will be helped as you exercise faith in Jesus Christ. That faith is demonstrated by a willingness to trust his promises given through his prophets and in his scriptures, which contain his own words, You may not fully understand how to do this yet, but trust that He will help you use your agency to open the doors for His healing to occur. Faith in Christ means we trust Him. We trust His teachings. That leads to hope, and hope brings charity, the pure love of Christ— that peaceful feeling that comes when we sense His concern, His love, His capacity to cure us or to ease our burdens with His healing power. Your access to the Savior's help comes in different ways. The most direct and often the most powerful way is through humble, trusting prayers to your Father in Heaven, which are answered through the Holy Ghost to your Spirit. Yet, this help is sometimes difficult to initiate and hard to recognize when you're learning how to pray with faith. If so, begin elsewhere. Trust someone near you. Then, as you learn, that trust will extend to God and His healing. Begin with a friend or bishop who understands the teachings of the Savior. Often, they have personally obtained healing through application of truth and faith in the Redeemer. They can show you how. Or start by reading, pondering, and applying the teachings of the scriptures. They are a very powerful source of assistance. While examples and anecdotes will help to understand principle, you will find that power comes from scriptural doctrine, as these quotes illustrate. I see that your faith is sufficient that I should heal you. Come unto me with full purpose of heart. Return unto me and repent of your sins, and be converted that I may heal you. Turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart and put your trust in Him, and serve Him with all diligence of mind. If ye do this, He will, according to His own will and pleasure, deliver you out of bondage. Even if they had unlimited time and resources, which they don't, priesthood leaders could not provide all of the help. They are agents of the Lord, and His law requires that you do your part. They will show you the way. They can provide priesthood blessings— Your faith and purity and obedience and that of the priesthood holder have great effect on the pronouncement and the realization of the blessing. Healing can occur in the act, yet more often it occurs over a period of time determined by the faith and obedience of the individual and the will of the Lord. I feel the pace is generally set by the individual and not by the Lord. He expects you to use other resources available, including professional help that is competent when indicated. Then He provides the balance needed according to His will. Love is a potent healer. Realizing that, Satan would separate you from the power of the love of God, of kindred, and of friends who want to help. He would lead you to feel that the walls are pressing in around you and that there is no escape or relief. He wants you to believe you lack the capacity to help yourself and that no one else is really interested. If he succeeds, you will be driven to further despair and heartache. His strategy is to have you think you are not appreciated, loved, or wanted so that you in despair will turn to self-criticism and in the extreme even despising yourself and feeling evil when you are not. Remember, the wisdom is God, is greater than the cunning of the devil. If you have such thoughts, break through those helpless feelings by reaching out to another in need, in love, That may sound cruel and unfeeling when you long so much for healing, but it is based upon truth. Paul taught, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Love comes by learning how to give it to another in a spirit of trust. If you feel deprived of love, that's difficult. Yet sustained concern and support of others will engender their interest and love. You will feel needed. You become an instrument through which the Lord can bless another. The Spirit will let you feel the Savior's concern and interest, then the warmth and strength of His love. President Kimball said, God does notice us and He watches over us. But it is usually through another mortal that he meets our needs. Therefore, it is vital that we serve each other. Challenge comes as testing from a wise, knowing father to give experience that we may be seasoned, mature, and grow in understanding and application of his truths. When you are worthy, a challenge becomes a contribution to growth, not a barrier to it. Yet no matter what the source of difficulty, no matter how you begin to obtain relief through a qualified professional therapist, doctor, priesthood leader, friend, concerned parent, or loved one, no matter how you begin, those solutions will never provide a complete answer. The final healing comes through faith in Jesus Christ and His teachings with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and obedience to His commandments. That is why human reaction to challenge in life that engenders hatred, despondency, distrust, anger, or revenge must be supplanted by the tender mercies of a loving Father in Heaven and His beloved Son. When anguish comes from evil acts of others, there should be punishment and corrective action taken, but the offended is not the one to initiate the action. Leave it to others who have that responsibility. Learn to forgive. Though terribly hard, it will release you and open the way to a newness of life. Time devoted by one injured to ensure the offender is punished is time wasted in the healing process. In summary, do what you can do a step at a time. Seek to understand the principles of healing through the scriptures and through prayer. Help others. Forgive. Submit cheerfully and with patience to the will of the Lord. And above all, exercise faith in Jesus Christ. If you feel you're on a plateau of spiritual healing and are not making progress, if you seem to be constantly dependent on another individual, a mortal for support, look up in faith To Jesus Christ. I know the Master loves you and will heal you according to your faith in Him. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen.
1: To Elder Scott's magnificent address on healing. I'd like to leave a few observations by someone whose entire professional life was that of a healer. As a practicing physician for over forty years I've had occasion to see many patients who were sick, who had injuries or sustained to their body. I hereby make an admission. Physicians do not cure patients. This marvelous and complicated machine we call the human body, has built into it its own wonderful healing mechanism. All a physician can do is to provide a good healing environment. I soon learned in my medical practice that the ultimate healing process for an injured or sick body was already provided by our Heavenly Father. I also learned that a patient's attitude has much to do with healing, those who would rely on Heavenly Father and exercise faith in the power of the priesthood often enjoyed faster recoveries. I've witnessed miracles. Many times when my medical training suggested a dismal prognosis, I've seen individuals fully recover. I've also witnessed others who relied with faith on the Lord and sought blessings with their prayers, but which prayers were not answered in a way the person Or the loved one desired. The Lord has given a condition for healing blessings. He that has faith in me to be healed and is not appointed unto death should be healed. Even when a person relies in faith on the Lord for blessings, if it is his or her appointed time to die, there will not be restoration of health. Indeed, death must come upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of the great Creator. President Spencer W. Kimball has written, If all of the sick for whom we prayed were healed, if all of the righteous were protected and the wicked destroyed, the whole program of the Father would be annulled. No man would have to live by faith. There would be little or no suffering, sorrow, disappointment, or even death. And if these were not, there would also be no joy, success, resurrection nor eternal life. As in my medical practice when I assisted sick patients, my assignment now is to assist individuals who have seriously sinned to repent and be restored to full fellowship in the gospel by following a prescription provided by the Lord. In this assignment, I have witnessed much sorrow, remorse, pain, and suffering because individuals have transgressed laws that our Heavenly Father provided for our happiness. I've also seen great sorrow come to families because of the sin of a transgressor in that family. I've seen repeatedly what all of us should already know, that there is no happiness in sin. The only one who can accomplish the healing of a sick soul is the great physician himself, our Father in Heaven through his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus promised those who will come to him with full purpose of heart and repent, I shall heal them. The Church cannot heal. Priesthood leaders do not heal. Only an omnipotent God can accomplish the miracle of spiritual healing. May I take just a few moments to discuss what an individual can do to assist in the spiritual healing process when one's soul has become tainted with sin. Our eight-year-old granddaughter was busy at work recently making cookies. She was following a recipe given to her by her mother but was stymied by one ingredient that was to be added to the recipe. It called for two teaspoons of soda, She asked her parents, Does it matter if it's root beer or 7-Up soda? When the cookies were baked, they tasted awful. Her mother concluded that the recipe failed because her daughter had misinterpreted half teaspoon of salt to be a half cupful of salt. Now, if the ingredients in the recipe for cookies is important... How much more important are the ingredients in the prescription for spiritual healing? And how much more important is it that we not misinterpret those instructions as was done with the cookies? A divine prescription for this healing has been given by our Heavenly Father, which has eternally significant implications. I restate the ingredients of this prescription as the Lord has given them to His servants— and to us as His children. The first ingredient is an acknowledgment of the cause of the spiritual malady. We call this in the healing of the physical body the diagnosis, and it would come after a careful history and physical examination. In spiritual healing, it is called confession. A careful examination of our spiritual self on a regular basis is not only worthwhile, but necessary. Confession of one's sins is always necessary with serious transgressions. A good start is with the interview with our bishop for a temple recommend. That in itself is not unlike a history taken by a physician before diagnosing. Where do we stand with the Lord? Are we happy with our own spirituality? Do we like what we see? Is the Holy Ghost our companion in life? Do we recognize the promptings of the Holy Spirit? The answers to these and other similar self-examination questions may help us to diagnose any spiritual illness which we may have. The second ingredient is a deep contrition and remorse for any wrongdoing we may find. The Savior mentions this when He says, And ye shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit Him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. I feel certain that the more we are successful in drawing close to Heavenly Father, the more our own blemishes will be apparent to us. The Lord has instructed us, Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Yet sorrow and sadness by themselves do not constitute a spiritual cure. They almost always accompany sin and transgression, however. A third ingredient is to seek forgiveness from those whom one has hurt by transgression. And they, in turn, must forgive, as the Lord has so forcefully stated, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive. But of you it is required that you forgive all men. Recently there came over my desk the poignant words of a father who had erred years ago and who was repentant. He agonized as he related that his sons and daughters refused to forgive him, even to the point of refusing to talk to him or see him in person after more than five years. The Lord tells us in DMC 64, Wherefore I say unto you that ye ought to forgive one another, for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. I wonder if there might indeed remain with those children the greater sin. I've seen many examples in my current assignment of those who just don't seem to be able to forgive another or to put their own sins behind them. This surely is one of the more important ingredients in spiritual healing. A fourth ingredient. There must be total abandonment of the sin. All too often I see those who have repented slip sometime later into their old sinful ways. And when that happens, previously repented of sins return to those who perhaps did not really repent after all. We read, I will not lay any sin to your charge. Go your ways and sin no more, but unto that soul who sinneth shall the former sins return, saith the Lord your God. A fifth ingredient. There must be compliance with all of the commandments of God. This means that those guilty of serious transgressions who are repentant, haven't really repented until they become full tithe payers or fully overcome word of wisdom problems or morally clean or keep the Sabbath day holy. Sixth, one must plead to the Lord for mercy, strength, and forgiveness until one receives through the Holy Ghost a peace of conscience. This is the essence of the atonement of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When King Benjamin had completed his sermon, He looked round about on the multitude, and, behold, they had fallen to the earth. And they had viewed themselves in their own carnal state, even less than the dust of the earth. And they all cried aloud with one voice, saying, "Oh, have mercy, and apply the atoning blood of Christ, that we may receive forgiveness of our sins, and our hearts may be purified. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins. Ultimate forgiveness comes from the Lord to the repentant individual. He or she knows by the power of the Holy Ghost when forgiveness has come. The final ingredient, number seven. There must be faithfulness and service throughout the rest of one's mortal life. These seven ingredients provide the prescription for spiritual healing and allow our coming to the Lord with full purpose of heart. The prophet Nephi explained what that was. I know that if ye shall follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God but with real intent, repenting of your sins, behold, then shall ye receive the Holy Ghost. And then can ye speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. I urge any who are in need of such spiritual healing to follow this divine prescription of the Savior. Come to Him. Acknowledge your sins. Fully repent. Permit priesthood leaders to assist you. Be long-suffering and patient. Plead that the Savior's Atonement will be efficacious for you, then permit Him to heal you. We sing a hymn that explains it well. Come, ye disconsolate, where'er ye languish. Come to the mercy seat, fervently kneel. Here bring your wounded hearts, here tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. I testify that while there are physical ailments that cannot be healed, all spiritual illness can be healed because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. If we will but use the God-given ingredients to cause such healing, it will happen. I testify to His healing power and promise that His prescription is the only cure for peace, happiness, and rest to one's soul in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: I stand before you today grateful for our Redeemer Jesus Christ, grateful for this gospel, grateful for the priesthood that blesses our lives, and for the goodness of all of you. This gathering of saints at General Conference reminds me of Isaiah's joyous proclamation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Righteous saints are the glory of God. And there are mighty legions gathered here and in many lands. Before we came to this earth, we shouted for joy at the opportunity to take this leap of faith in our eternal progression. When we were baptized, we stepped firmly onto the path to eternal life. The prophet Nephi said, After ye have gotten into this straight and narrow path, I would ask, if all is done? Nay, for ye have not come thus far, save it were by the word of Christ, with unshaken faith in him. Wherefore, ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ. Behold, this is the way. How do we press forward on the straight and narrow way? How do we focus on our eternal progression when we live in a world that demands such attention to daily tasks? How do we remain steadfast when so much around us is laden with sin? The people in Enoch's day faced these same challenges. Enoch began his ministry preaching to an unrighteous audience, but the people softened their hearts and heeded the words of the Lord, To walk with me, so can we. Our eternal progression on that straight and narrow path in the company of the Lord Jesus Christ is the focus of my message today. This is a journey made up of many steps. Our progress on this journey is determined by recognizing the straight and narrow path, having an eternal perspective, and acting accordingly. Remember, our eternal progression is the very essence of our earthly existence. It is the Lord's plan to get us all the way home to our Father in Heaven. This I know. Each of us can get there from here. President Spencer W. Kimball promised, It may seem a little difficult at first, but when a person begins to catch a vision of the true work, when he begins to see something of eternity in his true perspective, the blessings begin to far outweigh the cost of leaving the world behind. Some of our steps come in learning that the path is indeed straight and narrow. The concept of a straight path intrigues me. So often we go around in a circle, spinning our spiritual wheels, while only our temporal treads hit the road. That seems out of step and out of balance with the way the Lord intended. We have knowledge and spiritual power such momentum far exceeds anything the world has to offer. Putting off to tomorrow is to fall behind, step backward, and open the door to the subtle influences of Satan. There is no such thing as standing still in the eternal work of God. Elder Neil A. Maxwell has said, There are no separate paths back to our heavenly home. Just one straight and narrow way at the end of which, though we arrive trailing tears, we shall at once be drenched in joy. Indeed, the path is not soft green grass. It is not without hardship and heartache. It is often an uphill climb strewn with rocks, many of them in the shape of mighty boulders. We can't predict what our challenges will be because our lives are all different. Though the path is narrow, our moves are not scripted. There are diversions which attempt to lure us from the straight and narrow. It is our covenants that are the road signs to eternal life. Just as it is more difficult to read the signs on the main road from a side street, so too it is more difficult to hear the still, small voice of warnings, rough road ahead, when we have distanced ourselves from our covenants. When the Lord says, Walk with me, He's asking us to become more spiritual by being obedient to His word. Developing spirituality is critical to our eternal progress. Our prophet has spoken for the Lord in our day, and his messages have been explicit. Rid your heart of pride. Read the Book of Mormon every day. In following that counsel, I discover new insights suddenly appearing in my Book of Mormon which are so pertinent to my immediate needs. We have been given tools to develop that spirituality. We are told to attend Church meetings, work hard in callings, go to the temple, be generous in our offerings to the Lord, hold family home evening, and visit one another. But simply being there does not sanctify us. Statistics do not drive our eternal progression. Still, we cannot ignore that being in the right place at the right time will put us in a frame of mind to learn in an environment where the Lord's influence is invited and strong. Alma described what happens when we're not only present, but counted as Christ's disciples when he said, Have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received His image in your countenances? Have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Have ye felt to sing the song of redeeming love? Spirituality is all about feeling the Spirit of God, wanting it with us, sharing the Spirit with others, and heeding its prompting. Finally, progressing along the straight and narrow is characterized by making the Lord's work our work, serving as He would. Such work is grounded in charity, a principle Relief Society sisters have embraced for many years, for charity never faileth. Charity helps us maintain our footing when all around us are skidding about. Priscilla Sampson Davis, a sister in Ghana, has known struggles. There have been many rocks on the path of her life. As a teacher, she's watched families nurse children through dysentery and malaria, work hard, barter daily for sacks of rice, onions, tomatoes, any food to keep their loved ones alive. She serves as a visiting teacher, regularly traveling on the bus to see a sister on the other side of town. When asked if this task were a burden, Given all she had to manage, she simply replied, It's not hard. The woman I visit can't read. When I go, I read the scriptures to her. Her simple answer testified to the faith and assurance she had that she was on the proper path. Though her bus route was halting and likely wound up and down streets, in the Lord's eyes, it was truly straight and narrow, for she was going in the right direction. She was about her father's business. She exemplified the spirit described by President Ezra Taft Benson when he said, The best measure of true greatness is how Christ-like we are. Without question, those progressing eternally are those on the straight and narrow. They are spiritual and charitable. A bishop in the Dominican Republic exemplifies such a life. After sacrament meeting in his ward, a new convert, approached him and said, Bishop, I notice that the members are always looking at books when they sing. I want to do that. They look at books in Sunday school class. I want to do that. Quietly, the brother said, Bishop, I want to be a good member. I want to do all the Lord's work, but I can't read. Is there someone who can teach me? Yes, said the bishop. And then he tried to think of a likely tutor. He found himself saying, I'll teach you to read. For many months, this new convert and his wife met weekly with the bishop. They learned to read using the scriptures. Now this was a busy bishop, like they all are. He could have delegated the responsibility, but the Spirit had prompted him to take the assignment. They became friends in the gospel as they studied together. After two years, the bishop was released, and a new bishop called. Sustained to follow him as the leader of the ward was his student of the scriptures. This bishop set out to teach his friends how to read the gospel message, and in the process he showed them how to live it. Could this bishop have seen the end when he began? How often do we follow the dictums of the Lord and, in doing so, influence eternity? Focusing on our eternal purposes can ease our burdens and make our lives happy and more productive. Indeed, we often can do less and have it mean more. In Luke, we read of Martha receiving Jesus into her home. Her sister Mary sat at Jesus' feet and heard His word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and she complained that Mary did not help her. Did Jesus urge Mary to rush back to the tasks of the day? No. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part. The message holds true today. Choose the Lord's way, for it is glory everlasting. We know why we are here. When we are on the path, we can feel it. The fruits of eternal progress are manifest in joy, peace, love, hope, increased confidence in the Lord. Though the path is narrow, it is sure. It is on this path that we testify daily of our love for the Lord, His children, His Church, His counsel, and the richness of His blessings. By our good works we magnify what is mighty in us all, one step at a time, one day at a time, all the time. We know the path. In fact, we know it well. The prophet Nephi promised, If ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. May it be so. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
3: The thoughts I would leave with you today center around three statements of the Savior when he was upon the earth. When asked to define the first commandment of all, he answered, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Therefore, obedience to this commandment should become our highest priority. All of our efforts should evidence love for our Father in heaven. Jesus indicated several ways to demonstrate the love we should have for Him and for our Heavenly Father, but phrased it concisely in the simple statement, If ye love me, keep my commandments. Then our Savior added another short and easily understood statement, love one another. Our love of God and Jesus Christ and for each other should undergird all that we do and feel. Love sincerely given brings love in return. Love so shared brings trust, support, a level of security that is unsurpassed. A child naturally nestles in the arms of his or her mother, seeking love and protection from her who gave life. That kind of innate love seems to exemplify the commandment to love one another. Love of others seems to come so naturally to children. Their expectation of love in return seems also to be inborn. These typical tendencies for children to love became especially apparent to me upon my first visit to Romania. I remember it vividly. Sister Choles and I went to various institutions with our humanitarian missionaries who were serving there. At an orphanage we saw a rather long, narrow, glass-enclosed room where twenty or so children were playing. They were about three years of age. Most of their daytime hours were spent entertaining themselves and each other, apparently with very little adult care. I asked the supervisor if I could open the door and take some pictures. She agreed. Upon opening the door, many of the children rushed out. I was reminded of days in my youth when in like manner I saw cattle and horses rush to freedom when a corral gate was opened. These children, however, were not rushing to be free. They hungered for love. Soon we had one or more grasping at each of our legs, reaching up for the love for which they were so starved. I'll forever have in my mind the picture I took of Sister Choles holding one of these little children with her arms tightly wrapped around each other. These children just wanted to be loved and to give love in return. These little ones and other children seem to be born with that unrestrained desire and capacity. But as we get older, something seems to get in the way. It seems more difficult to give and receive sincere love, as children do so naturally. The Lord not only said, Love one another, but He prefaced those words with, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. Then he talked the kind of love that we should cultivate, when he added, As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Often I have wondered, Why does we as adults have to be commanded to do that which comes so naturally to children? Perhaps that is why Christ said that each of us should strive to become as a little child, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven for which we strive can begin with a heavenly life here and now. We can develop a child's love matured. President David O. McKay said, I know of no other place than home where more happiness can be found in this life. It is possible to make home a bit of heaven. Indeed, I picture heaven to be a continuation of the ideal home. Some man has said, Home filled with contentment is one of the highest hopes of this life. How do we make our home the ideal home and the proper prelude to heaven? I believe we start with the Savior's admonition to keep His commandments and to do so specifically within the walls of our own home. Husband and wife, father and mother, set the example and tone for all that happens within the home. Hopefully, the relationship starts at a sacred altar in a holy temple. There they kneel, knowing that they are both worthy of that sacred privilege. They are prepared and desirous of entering into sacred covenants to put each other and the goal of being together in heaven first in their lives. Selfishness is to be put aside. They begin a partnership, a full partnership that is to be eternal. In recent years I have become aware of too many instances in which a man particularly has tried to dominate and exercise unrighteous dominion simply because he has convinced himself that it is his male role. Some mistakenly declare that it is right because they hold the priesthood. Nothing could be further from the truth. The sacred declaration in section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants belies that erroneous concept. The scripture states clearly that no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. By kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile, reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love toward him whom thou hast reproved, lest he esteem thee to be his enemy, that he may know that thy faithfulness is stronger than the cords of death. In contrast, a thoughtless and domineering man may mock the phrase, Reproving betimes with sharpness. Indeed, he may reprove sharply, oft times with raised voice, mouthing vulgar words and phrases, even punctuated with vile physical acts or other kinds of abuse. Forgotten is the qualifier when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. No abusive act would have the sanction of heaven, much less take origin from there. Such a man also seems to have forgotten that not long ago he knelt at a sacred altar and coveted with his sweet companion and with God to keep all of the Lord's commandments. No man, particularly one who bears the priesthood, has the right to treat any woman unkindly, especially his wife with whom he would hope to share eternal joy. Certainly unrighteous dominion cannot be excused upon the mistaken notion that permission comes by being the husband, the head of the family, and particularly in the umbrella or authority of the priesthood. The scripture is clear that when sacred authority is abused, the authority of the priesthood is withdrawn. Elder M. Russell Ballard emphasized this at last October conference. He said, Any man who claims the special powers of heaven for his own selfish purposes and seeks to use the priesthood in any degree of unrighteousness in the Church or in the home simply does not understand the nature of his authority. Priesthood is for service, not servitude. Compassion not compulsion, caring, not control. Those who think otherwise are operating outside the parameters of priesthood authority. Thankfully, most of our fathers and priesthood officers lead with love, just as most of our mothers and auxiliary leaders do. Leadership based on love brings incredible power. It is real, and it generates lasting results in the lives of our fathers' children. Paul taught succinctly, Husbands, love your wives— even as Christ also loved the Church and gave Himself for it. When true love prevails between husband and wife, they want to give themselves to and for each other, as Christ gave of Himself. We give for each other on a daily basis when we endeavor always to make each other happy. Then we give up thinking selfishly of ourselves and our personal needs. Then we really think not only of the here and now, but of the hereafter. The Savior has told us that if we marry by my word which is by law, and by the new and everlasting covenant. And if ye ye abide in my covenant, it shall be done unto them in all things whatsoever my servant hath put upon them in time and through all eternity, and shall be of full force when they are out of the world. And they shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things, as hath been sealed upon their heads." which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever and ever. These are the great and marvelous blessings of exaltation, glory, and eternal life. They are only sealed upon us in the holy temples. They can indeed be ours. With the eternal perspective, only loving thoughts and actions should prevail in our homes where we help each other along the road to exaltation. That perspective not only prepares us for eternity— but it makes the here and now much happier and more fulfilling. I have watched the brethren, those who understand the rights of the priesthood and the needs of eternity, perhaps more clearly than anyone. I have watched how they speak of and treat their sweethearts. They give us an example of love, respect, and kindness that we would do well to emulate. Children learn to copy the patterns of the parents. If parents honor the Sabbath day, if they go to church, if they serve faithfully in their callings with no criticism of leaders, if they heed the word of wisdom, if they cheerfully pay their tithes and offerings, if they honor covenants made in the temple, and other commandments are lived and taught, children will receive a priceless foundation. Sons and daughters will treat their wives and husbands in the future as they see their parents treat each other. We can indeed make our home a bit of heaven here, as President McKay stated. We also set the groundwork for our children's homes to be so, too. I love my wife Marilyn so very much, and I am so grateful for her, for the years we have had together and for her love given to me in so many ways. She's a marvelous wife and mother and grandmother and faithful servant of the Lord in her own right. My daily prayer includes feelings of gratitude for her, and a plea that I might be the kind of husband that I should be and want to be. I am grateful for our children and our grandchildren and the love that we share together. I bear my witness that God and Christ live, that if we will love them and keep their commandments and love each other, particularly our companions and our children, we will be happier here and more secure eternally. I am grateful for these great brethren who lead us and I testify of their sacred callings. I am grateful for and humbled by the opportunity and blessing of serving with them. I pray for them and for each of you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
4: A few years ago I walked the halls of a care center. Most of the occupants were infirm individuals who were time-worn and anxious to go elsewhere. In passing one of the rooms, I heard a weak cry for help. The door was slightly ajar, so I entered with the hope that I might help someone in distress. Once inside, my eyes were met by a pleading look from a sweet elderly woman in a wheelchair. She stared at me for a moment and asked, Can I die? Can I die? Her tender look, soft voice, and delicate features melted my heart. The woman obviously was suffering physical pain and wanted to be released from a wasted body. She longed for the companionship of loved ones who had preceded her in death. I don't recall exactly what I said on that occasion, but I did attempt to reassure the woman that she could and would die in the Lord's appointed time. I also tried to reassure her that she would live again free of the infirmities that now troubled her. The real issue facing each of us is not, can I die? Physical death is one of life's certainties. It occurs regularly and is evidenced by the printed obituary notices and the empty chairs at our tables. For just as the sun sets at the close of each day in accord with the eternal rhythm of life, so will we experience a temporary separation of body and spirit, whereby our tabernacles of flesh will be placed in the cold and silent grave and our spirits will be taken home to that God who gave them life. But rather, the real issue is, if a man die, shall he live again? Will the grave seal our fate forever, or is there a resurrection and another sphere of existence awaiting our souls? Those who believe that the grave is man's final destiny live without hope of a better world and are inclined to embrace that fatalistic approach, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This approach often leads to wanton experimentation, immoral conduct, and all the other behaviors that reap misery and remorse of conscience, whereas those who believe in a life after death are much more inclined to lead purposeful lives. Belief in a resurrection and related truths encourages one to obey the commandments, repent of sins, serve others, and do the other things that bring joy and happiness both here and hereafter. It seems, therefore, most appropriate that we address this real issue, Shall I Live Again, on the eve of Easter, a day when Christians the world over will commemorate the Resurrection of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A noted writer referred to Christ's Resurrection as the greatest miracle and the most glorious fact of history. Miracles are manifestations of divine or spiritual powers. They are not simply sleight-of-hand tricks or actions contrived by clever men. They are acts wrought by individuals with powers beyond those of mortals. What could possibly be greater than the act of laying one's body down in in death and picking it up again in the resurrected state, as did Jesus? Only by the use of godly powers and only through the grace of God could such a marvelous thing occur. What about the claim that the Resurrection was the most glorious fact of history? The facts of the Resurrection may be placed in two groups or classes. One is the cloud of witnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. The other is the army of believers, both present and past, who on the strength of personal testimonies declare with conviction, The grave hath no victory, and the sting of death is swallowed up in Christ. Both classes of evidence are significant and worthy of our review. In the Acts of the Apostles it is recorded to whom also he showed himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Included in the cloud of witnesses or among the infallible proofs were hundreds of followers who saw the risen Lord on multiple occasions. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene. She saw him and heard his voice. He appeared to Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them. They held him by the feet and worshipped him. He appeared to Peter, the one who had denied him thrice. He appeared to two disciples as they went into the country. He appeared to his beloved apostles at least four times. He was seen after the crucifixion by five hundred brethren at once, according to Paul's account. Moreover, the graves were opened, and many bodies of the Saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after His Resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Even after all of these witnesses, there were the skeptics. Some regarded the words of the women as idle tales. Jesus chided the two disciples by saying, O fools and slow of heart! To believe all that the prophets have spoken, and He upbraided some because they believed not them which had seen Him earlier after He was risen. One wonders how anyone could doubt the actuality of the Resurrection after reading the several accounts of His appearances to the women, the disciples, and the apostles. What greater evidence would one want than the documentation of fact provided in Holy Writ? But there is more, wrote John, the testimony of two men is true. If this is a valid statement, then surely the testimony of Christ's escape from the tomb, provided by a second nation, must not be overlooked. I refer, of course, to the Book of Mormon record of Christ's post-mortal appearances on the Western Hemisphere. Near a temple in the land called Bountiful, some 2,500 people heard a small, piercing voice declare Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. They stood in awe and experienced a change of heart upon hearing God, the Eternal Father, introduce his only begotten Son, his means of extending the gifts of immortality and eternal life to all of his children. The multitude saw a man descending out of heaven. They heard him announce, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. Then he invited the people to come forth one by one and see with their eyes and feel with their hands the print of the nails in his hands and in his feet. A cloud of people on two continents were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. Thus it can be said about this glorious fact of history, the Resurrection is attested by evidence more conclusive than that which rests our acceptance of historical events in general. Infallible proofs of spiritual matters such as Christ's Resurrection are not of the hand but of the heart They are not seen with the naked eye. They are seen through the eyes of faith. Nor are they established by a touch of a finger. The reality of spiritual matters is confirmed by feelings stirred through the spoken or written words of God. I say this because the Spirit speaketh the truth and lieth not. Wherefore, it speaketh of things as they really are and of things as they really will be. The Holy Spirit deals with facts, not with fancied happenings. You'll recall that the two disciples who walked and talked with Christ on the road to Emmaus did not recognize Him at first. Later, however, their eyes were opened and they knew Him. When they reflected, did not our heart burn within us while He talked to us by the way and while He opened to us the scriptures? You'll also recall that Jesus said to Thomas, Be not faithless but believing, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Our eyes of faith will also be opened, and we shall know of a surety that he lives and that we shall live again. If we believe and accept the divine invitation, walk with me. Yes, we walk with him in the desert and feel his presence when we fast, pray, and withstand temptation. We walk with Him to Jacob's well, and our hearts burn within us when we study the scriptures and drink living waters. We walk with Him to Galilee, when we teach and live the truth. We walk with Him in Gethsemane, when we assume the burdens of others. We walk with Him to Calvary, when we take up our cross by denying ourselves of all ungodliness and every worldly lust. We suffer with Him on Golgotha when we sacrifice our time, talents, and means in building up the kingdom of God. We rise with Him to a newness of life when we seek a spiritual rebirth and strive to become His sons and daughters. And in the process of following in His footsteps, we gain the personal conviction or infallible proof that He lives, that He is the Son of the living God, and that He is our Redeemer. I cannot go back to that sweet old woman in the wheelchair who begged, Can I die? She's already crossed the bridge between earth and heaven, the bridge we call death. She now knows better than I that dying and living again are established facts. She knows of a certainty that death is not a period but a comma in the story of life, for she has gone back home and is cradled in the arms of God's love. Whether young or old, we need not look upon death with any degree of terror for our hope and views of Christ and the Resurrection. Wherefore, death is swallowed up to us by the victory of Christ over it. He is our Redeemer. He is the Resurrection and the Life. I bear solemn testimony that we shall live again. Such testimony is founded upon the words of eyewitnesses, including modern prophets who have seen and heard the living God and the living Christ and upon personal and sacred experiences of the Spirit, gained in attempting to walk with God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.